0: When we think about our product, we really see ourselves as the only player that's taking that truly holistic approach to the measure, manage, and report, and really helping businesses understand how to strategize their business, you know, strategize sustainability from the ground up.
1: Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding, and I'm your host. As a former private equity investor, occasional monk, startup founder, Duke and UNC professor, and mastermind guide for our climate CEO peer groups, I launched this podcast to share inspiring stories of CEOs and investors tackling climate change. Honestly, just got a little tired of all the doom and gloom. Through these interviews, I hope we can all become better founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and human beings by digesting these guests' secrets to starting and scaling climate companies, creating careers of impact, building habits and routines for higher productivity and health, and growing through maybe life-changing books and podcasts that they recommend. All right, let's get started. A two-for-one, if you will, today with Entrepreneurs for Impact. So we have two guests, mike hanrahan uh co-founder uh board member interim ceo for sustain life and Alyssa raid chief sustainability officer uh coming to us from the northeast uh just outside new york city and inside it in brooklyn so a little ways away from quaint little uh chapel hill hey mike Alyssa, great to have you on uh, the podcast hey chris yeah thanks so much for having us on excited to be here
0: absolute pleasure
1: so I, I I'm still smiling because before pressing record, we said, well, what possible notifications could disrupt our, uh, our podcast. And I think Mike had one of the best ones yet, which is if someone rings your doorbell, Mike, I think you said Google home will say something very loud.
2: Like Mike, uh, yeah. Yeah. It'll say, Hey, someone, you know, is at the front door or someone you don't recognize is at the front door. They're the two options. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Not fun during a meeting. It certainly. Yeah. Is. I'm, I'm part- a Yeah,
1: I'm partly scared but by, by by it knowing who you know. Um, but anyway, if it happens, maybe it'll occur at the same time as Alyssa's dog barking. And we'll uh we'll be keeping it real during COVID on the podcast. Just to start us off with, sustain.life. Sustain life, give us a summary in uh you know a couple sentences. How about that?
0: Sure. I'm happy to take this one. So we're an environmental management and carbon accounting SaaS tool. Um, and we help companies manage, really launch and manage sustainability programs all the way from the ground up, building towards ambitious goals like net zero. And we do that across three primary pillars of measure, manage and report. And so that's how we you know, typically describe our, our whole offering, but really helping businesses operationalize sustainability, launch those programs and build them all the way up towards net zero to really reach the climate goals that we know we need to get to as a planet.
1: Yeah. But wait, Alyssa! I thought that was so easy. Why do we? Why do they need help? Uh, exactly. Ha ha ha. ha. <laughs> cool. So, so now the listeners know what what's coming. But then we're going to rewind, and we're going to try to tell them something they they need to hear. And that that question is: What what is a mistake that you all see many CEOs making? Perhaps that you're you're trying to avoid. So, uh, what comes to mind there?
2: Yeah, I would say if I'm allowed to talk about two different mistakes, I'll say there's one tactical mistake that I see a lot of CEOs making, and and probably one strategic mistake that I see pretty regularly, and and one I think we work hard to avoid. On the tactical front, I I think a lot of people don't empower the people they work with. They don't give them the latitude to do what, what they were hired to do. They can often micromanage, not necessarily with bad intentions or in a negative way, but sometimes that's the dynamic that plays out because. People are trying to set up a new startup, it's their baby, they want things done sometimes their way. And so, you know, by not by not empowering people, by not getting the leverage out of everyone that's in the company, I think that can be a real break on success and on moving forward and on doing what you need to do. So, and then that's something I see it's very common. And it it takes two forms, I would say. Sometimes if people are in a company together, their peers, they'll often operate as a unit as a committee and it's not so much an empowerment thing, but it 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 stops getting leverage from uh, from everyone in the company and, and you know there needs to be more of a divide and conquer mindset. and then the other dynamic is where you've got a boss maybe or a founder or a CEO hiring some people and just Wanting, you know, applying too much oversight to what they're doing. So, so I think that's a tactical mistake that that I see. Not just CEOs, frankly, but you'll often get it right across a business. And so, if you want to get the most out of your people, and hopefully you've hired great people and they're good at their job, you got to give them the latitude to make mistakes, operate Mm. stuff down, and you know, you'll have a stronger company for it. On the strategic side, I think you know a, a big mistake, and it's something that's hard to do, frankly. And I still find myself sometimes making the same mistake, but it's about managing failures. You know, things never go according to plan, and how you react to that, and how you deal with that, and how you maybe sometimes try and predict that. Uh, I think is, is is instrumental to how you move forward as a company. One that I think is very common is you know linked to this sunken cost fallacy, where a co-founder has invested a lot of time, energy mental energy bandwidth in an idea, in a strategy. And sometimes if it's not working out, they can be either blind to that fact because they've spent a lot of time trying to convince investors, customers, their partners, maybe themselves, right? They've they've maybe drunk their own Kool-Aid and they haven't taken that step back, be objective, look at something from a 30,000 foot level and, and be intellectually honest with themselves and say, you know, is this really working? Uh, is what we're doing here really the right thing that we should be doing? And so I think finding time to do that as a CEO is difficult. It can be a difficult conversation with your management team or with yourself. But I think it's something that CEOs need to do regularly. And and there's so many stories out there of startups that just grind to a halt very, very suddenly. And people here on a Friday morning, they're out of a job or whatever. And, and that comes from people you know is this sunken cost value, as they said they've invested all this time money energy they don't want to maybe admit that something is not going the way it should so that's a strategic mistake and as i said one we try and, and and guard against ourselves we sort of do a very rigorous exercise once a month to say hey are we doing the right thing here are things going as well as they should are we making excuses for for things that are maybe not going as well as they should and so you know trying to be rigorous about that and, and being honest with yourself and, and sort of being transparent with, with the company as well in terms of how things are going. That's a mistake we see a lot. And, and I think sometimes leads to, to failure and bad outcomes. Mm. Yeah.
1: Th- th- those make a lot of sense. How about picking up on the last one? Can either of you pick, you know, an example of that mistake or, or others in, in your roles roles with Sustained Life or other ventures to make it tangible for, for listeners? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I will absolutely talk to this because I've had many <laughs> failed ventures in my past. And and so I feel I've, I've learned a lot as I've, as I've made my journey. Um, I spent a lot of time in London trying to build various startups with a very good friend of mine. And the big mistake we made time and time again over there and, and a mistake that I never really fully appreciated until I moved to the US, but it was just not capitalizing the business properly. We had businesses in the insurance space, in the recruitment space, in the technology space, in, in the golf space, and, and we would work at them really hard, invest a lot of time and energy and, and mind share for maybe 12 or 14 months. And you know they weren't getting the traction, maybe they should. And we would always convince ourselves that the problem was the idea. And in fact, in hindsight, the problem was we didn't have enough money to invest in making the idea a reality. Mm. And so I I think, you know, this mistake of not not getting funding and it it can come from different places. You know, I think for me and and my co-founder back in in London, there was a bit of an Irish mindset of not wanting to borrow money or take money from others Mm. or being nervous about being in hock to someone or whatever it is. You know, that was, I think, the mindset we had back then. I think as we maybe matured a little bit in London, then we were like, "Well, we don't want to give up any ownership of our business. You know, that would be a huge mistake." And, and you know, never really internalize the fact that it's better to own twenty percent of something worth ten million than yeah. something worth nothing, right? And, and so, you know, being being comfortable taking on funding in whatever form, whether it's VC or debt or or whoever manage whoever you manage to do it, I think is important because. The days of setting up a successful business out of your bedroom and it being, you know, an instant hit, I feel like those opportunities are gone for the most part. I'm sure there'll be some that will prove me wrong in the future. But you kind of need a certain amount of capital these days to be credible. And there's table stake things you need to do around security and sales and content and and all those various areas. So, Mm. you know, having the appropriate amount of capital to give yourself a chance and stay in the game is crucial, I think, to success And, and a mistake I have made many times, but hopefully will not do so again.
1: There you go. There you go. That's awesome. I'll summarize those, and we're going to pop back into your business of sustained life and, and what makes you all unique. So empower your team. Avoid micromanaging despite despite your best intentions. Um, watch out for the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, yeah, lots of time or money invested in a certain path or approach or partner or whatnot, but maybe it's the wrong one, right? So find ways to, to be a little more candid in reviewing what's working, what's not working at a team. And then be properly capitalized. And if you're not, you may have a good idea, but but cannot cannot properly execute. Okay, let's uh, let's go back to sustain life. Let's get into the details here. So, what what makes you all unique from uh, the competition?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there's we we can be honest about this. There's like a fair amount of noise in you know the climate tech and especially the carbon management space. There's a lot of players, but. You know, when we think of what really differentiates the, us, we categorize it in a couple different buckets. And the first one is our comprehensiveness. A lot of the players, when you really start to dig into the specific service offerings, they actually have a pretty narrow focus. So you've got like your offset providers that are really all about pushing a carbon neutral agenda. Um, without any operational change or like management support to bring those emissions and your environmental impacts down. And then you have, or you'll have like your reporting SaaS tools that are really good at taking your data and kind of slicing and dicing it and putting it in the right format for reporting or disclosures. But again, without any actual like measurement or management insight. And so when we think about our product, we really see ourselves as the only player that's taking that truly holistic approach to the measure, manage, and report, and really helping businesses understand how to strategize their business, you know, strategize sustainability from the ground up and take the data, you know, tell them what to collect, how to actually measure these things, and then use that data for two purposes. Third-party disclosures, sure, absolutely important, like, you know, third-party aligned um, reporting disclosures, as well as actual operational insights of business decisions and changes that you might want to make based off of this information. Another big distinguishing characteristic about us is actually who we're going after. So you've got a lot of exciting SaaS products that are really targeting like an enterprise level client. They're going after these really big fish, whereas we're focused more on the mid-market players. You know, when we think of the climate crisis, like 90% of businesses in the U.S. are mid-market companies, and that's who you need. That's what you need in order to actually make the change that we need on a global scale to bring our emissions numbers down. So that's who we're going after. We're going after the companies that don't have the resources, uh, you know, financial or or you know, capital or capita to hire their own in-house teams or to hire you know the uh, consulting firm to do this work for them. We want to tool them. We want to upskill their existing workforce. And make sustainability accessible to them, make climate action accessible to them. So that you don't have to have someone with, you know, 10 years experience who went and, and studied these things. There simply just aren't, there's not even enough of that, of that talent. I think there's a a stat that was published on LinkedIn recently, I think, that says like, you know, the demand for folks with climate, you know, expertise and background. It's like it's, it's the demand is growing by 8% a year and the talent pool is only growing by 6% a year. So like we, you know, we're really there. To, to fill that gap and give even those with the, you know, with the experience and the expertise, the tools to be able to scale that expertise and, and to be able to measure these things and manage these things at scale. And then the last one that I will mention is, is that we're a SaaS tool. And I say that like we're a real deal SaaS tool. I think, I think some of the other players in this space are kind of a SaaS tool, but they're really supported by these very large consulting teams And that makes them both expensive, you know, to actually work with, with like heavy, you know, heavier integration periods. And it just makes their business difficult to scale. And so we're, we're super serious about being a scalable SaaS product. I mean, you've got, we've got Mike here, we're founded by technologists. That is like the core backbone of our product is how can we make a software product that scales all of this ability so that it's accessible to companies at large.
1: So l- listeners can't see what I see, but uh, Alyssa is almost levitating right now with energy <laughs> about <laughs> what makes them unique. So on the who, or the, you're, you're all's core customers, it is not the, the, say, Fortune 500, you know, household logo necessarily. It's this mid-market and I think it's kind of an interesting, you know, takeaway for listeners where, yeah, it's, it's pretty tempting to be like, let's, let's chase the logos everyone knows about as, as our customers but the the less sexy customer base could be way more interesting i mean 90% i think of businesses you said are mid market or smaller boy that's a that's a lot of businesses to serve that are also pretty pretty well resourced right
0: yeah i mean they're just the ones like they need the help i mean you know a little bit of my origin story of you know how i came over to sustain my background is in corporate esg and sustainability like i've always been in the climate space my you know academic studies and I've been working in corporate ESG, and then when I learned about sustain, it was like, okay, like this is—I've yeah, always wanted to work in the belly of the beast. So I went to grad school in New York. What causes all the emissions in New York? It's buildings. So oh, yeah. I went to work yeah. in the built environment. Yep. And so that's how I spent most of my career in real estate and the built environment. And you know, that's actually a space that has like a pretty sophisticated and mature roadmap to sustainability and climate action. Not to say that like everybody's doing it. Like buildings clearly have like a lot of progress to make, but there's a roadmap there. You have leaders in that space. You have large, you know, owners of real estate that are kind of setting the tone for that industry of what to do. And so when I thought about Sustain and it's like, okay, here's this software platform that's going to leverage the experience and expertise of climate experts from the private sector and make that available to businesses that have traditionally been barred from engaging in climate action and sustainability. They literally don't know where to start. It's daunting. It's intimidating. There's this whole alphabet suit of of acronyms with emissions and greenhouse gases and CO2E and reporting disclosures and TRI. I mean, it's, it's so much total. I mean, (laughs) they can't see you, but brain explosion. Yeah, it is. And so, you know, the, the opportunity to distill that and make that accessible and allow companies to engage in that, to me, was just, I mean, incredible. That's what our whole mission is about. I'm, I'm clearly fired up about it.
1: <laughs> well, go, going back to, Mike, your earlier points about empowering team members, I think you've already empowered Alyssa uh, sufficiently. A, a lot of rocket fuel there.
2: Absolutely there is, yeah. It's very easy uh, to empower Alyssa, I'll tell you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so so uh, another thread I'm hearing for those listening is like, all right, so there's there are companies that have SaaS at their core, right? To different degrees, let's say. Your point is, you know, SaaS could mean SaaS is the core, or it could mean it's kind of the the onboarding, it's the hook, right? That then, you know, kind of flows through to higher-end consulting. I get it, like pure SaaS, generally cheaper, certainly higher margin, more scalable, reach more folks, more businesses that need it. I think for those listening, you know, I would say like, those are two interesting approaches, right? Maybe you want to build a Lead with SaaS, follow with consulting. But if you want higher margin, more scalability, you want to focus more on, of course, just the pure, just the pure SaaS. I wonder if you could tell a story um, of of a customer and a kind of you don't need to name names, or you can if they want you to. A story of a customer and then like what that transformation looked or is looking like.
0: This is a good one. I know Mike's gonna want me to take this one, so I better wrap my brains for a good compelling case study here i mean we've got a lot we've got folks that are you know understand what emission scopes are okay i want to compile my scope one two three but don't understand how to strategize like well where do i start what's the most material to me what's the most important to me don't understand where should i be focusing and what can i do to actually pull these levers and I think like that's like a, a really clear tie in the platform is that measurements really important. You can't manage what you don't measure, right? Peter Drucker. I've like, heard that before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. But like measurement for measurements, like the whole point of measuring is because you want to manage it. And so measuring for measurement's sake just isn't going to be that valuable. And mm. so we work. You know, I'm thinking of one customer. I'm, I'll I'll leave them nameless, but just you know cool. thinking about them, they have these measurements. And they're like, okay, we can collect this data. And now what do i do working with our platform to understand okay so these are actually strategies i understand where i want to focus like i get it our our business travel is a huge emitting category for us like that's where a lot of our environmental impact comes from working with our platform a key piece of it is we have all of these recommendations really step-by-step guidance of how do you pursue these different sustainability initiatives and so working through the platform to understand like oh this is how I could actually reduce our business travel. These are steps I can take. These are initiatives I could pursue. These are the stakeholders I'd have to work with. This is how I implement this at my organization. This is how I track this. This is where I get the data. This is, you know, it's all integrated in. So giving them not only the dashboard, you know, to like here, put your numbers in and we're gonna compute all of your business activities and we'll translate that to an emissions output but also the strategy of, and this is how you make that change at your business. These are Mm. the questions to ask. This is how to pressure test this. This is how to strategize and come up with the right approach that works for you because it's not prescriptive, right? It's not going to be the same policy or the same approach for everybody, but it's about approaching it from that kind of a thoughtful perspective so that you can arrive at the right, you know, the right exact steps for you as a business.
2: Mm. I I would say- mm. Not talking about a specific customer, but I think there's a, an overarching theme that we're seeing, Chris, as we talk to all our customers. And almost all of the customers that come to us are new to the area of sustainability. Mm. As I said we're targeting big market, but you know about a third of our company, as our customers, are, are public companies, mm. and they come to the platform not quite knowing what to do. And I think maybe more importantly, not really understanding the scale of effort required to be truly sustainable. And I think some of our customers come in or maybe a lot of them with an analog with other special projects they may have done in the company, right? This is how the company reacted to COVID. This is the DEI program we rolled out. Now we need to do something about sustainability. And I think a theme we're seeing a lot is that there's a really new appreciation for how complex, how difficult, how much it really touches every single part of your business. When when you're getting into it and really trying to be truly sustainable, it can be a little daunting, frankly. There's a lot to it. There's a lot that needs to get measured. There's a lot that needs to change in the business if you ultimately want to get there. And so the theme we see is, you know, as Alyssa said, let's help them get started with this, but let's understand that they're on a journey. And, you know, year one for them might be, let's just do some culture building things internally. Let's run a bike to work program. Let's maybe uh, provide some green credits to our employees so that they can do something. Let's obviously start measuring our carbon emissions, maybe at an estimated level. But I think it's taking them on that journey, understanding the, the breadth and scope. And you know, if you wanna be net zero, it could take you 10 to 15 years to get there as a company. And so I think the theme we're seeing is, you know they come in, it's a new space for them, There's a a fairly big education period. There's going to be a big socialization period within the company. I think you need to get everyone bought in to be successful. And so just taking them on a very guided way, in a handheld way on that journey, understanding it's going to be a long journey. And and as they get more sophisticated on their sustainability journey, our platform obviously will get more sophisticated and grow with them and and help them get there. So so I think that's the, the, the theme that we're pretty consistently seeing on the platform
1: yeah so so customizing it's not one size fits all your software can can make it you know personalized to to companies so that's that's helpful for sure the prioritizing I totally get that right it, it is overwhelming to understand how many acronyms you know there are in sustainability and then what's most important to your business not just what's the most important to you know to, to any business I think you know alyssa when you talked about what to measure I think about the phrase you know something like you know just because you can, doesn't mean you should, right? Oh, I, we, we can measure this data, but yeah, Alyssa's like, yeah, but you shouldn't because it's not material to your financial outcomes or to your stakeholders, right? Um, which I, I think is a good, a, good, a good filter for, I think listeners to ask themselves too, in lots of contexts, I can, but but should I, right?
0: Exactly.
1: Um, and then you, your story takes me back, oh, many years, I don't know, 15 years, when I was in private equity, helping us figure out what sustainability meant. I mean, we were, we were issuing these, you know, sustainability reports and like the CEO really cared about it. Me and a few others cared about it, but boy, the, the, the peanut butter and jelly of that sandwich right there was very thick, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, if there were tools like this to reduce complexity into simple actions, I can imagine it would have made it much easier for me. Yeah, I get that. How about you talked about this as a journey, right? So. Maybe without disclosing your entire confidential roadmap to anyone listening, how would you describe, you know, sustain's set of problems that you solve today versus the problems you plan to be solving for the same or different customers? Is that is that a fair, or unfair question? Maybe that's mean. I don't know.
2: <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's a fair question. I'll take a stab at that, uh, Alyssa, and then maybe you can follow up with some maybe more concrete things. I think. In the first instance, what we're trying to solve for customers right now is what Alyssa described earlier, right? How do we get basic measurement in place? How do we help them manage? How do we help them do some reporting? We've gone very broad with our feature set just because that's what our customers are looking for right now. They're new to sustainability. They want to sort of touch on everything. They're not going to spend You know, 100,000 on four or five different platforms, which is kind of what you need to do if you're in the enterprise space, right? You need a a surveying platform and you need a supplier management platform and you need a carbon accounting platform and maybe, you know, two or three other, you need a consultant, of course. And and so we're trying to make sure we cover all the bases for these companies who are new to sustainability, who want to invest in it, but they don't want to invest maybe a million dollars or half a million dollars in it. They maybe want to invest 20, 30, 40,000 and sort of start understanding. where they are relative to their peers, relative to the industry, and start formulating some goals and plans. And so, you know, our, our initial feature set is really to, to play into that, to make sure that we've got, you know, really deep, excellent carbon accounting and environmental management. That's that's really important. And that's table stakes. And as Alyssa says, there's a lot of noise in that area. And given the sort of technical uh, background of our team, we wanted to make sure that that we were world class in that aspect, but we layer on to that A lot of different program management action content to help companies become, uh, you know, start that journey, as we said, and help them go on that journey. And then we layer onto that a lot of tooling. So, you know, one of the ones that we're excited about is is scope three management, which is a really hard, tricky, thorny area. But we have tools in there so that you can start engaging with your downstream um, emissions and start trying to understand them, survey them, you know, think about where those big emissions are coming from, what are the intensity factors of the different products, et cetera. So, you know, so various tools like that, but that's sort of what we're about right now. I think probably worth making a plug for how API focused we are. So, you know, we're truly industry agnostic right now and we're very committed to being number one in this space and to scaling and so, We recognize a big part of that is being able to support all the different data sources that are going to be needed by all of our customers to be able to calculate and manage their emissions. And there's a plethora of different sources from accounting, you know, how many accounting systems are out there, and you're looking at all the utility systems and utility providers and IoT devices, you know, tachographs and trucks measuring, you know, emissions or mileage or whatever, right? So there's hundreds of different Uh, data sources that will be needed to calculate emissions across the the, the client base that uh, we have and and is growing, obviously. And so being API first and making sure we provide tools so our clients can do those types of integrations and they can automate this data collection as much as possible, that's really key to us. You know, we recognize that, we can't, as a company, hope to do all those integrations ourselves. We'll do some of the key ones around utilities and accounting systems, but there's going to be hundreds of other systems that our customers need to integrate with. And so, providing APIs that you know their development and engineering teams can use to help mm. with integrations is, is really, really important to us. So, so that's you know that's something that underpins a lot of this where we've gone broad on on the product set. I think as we go forward down the line, Lisa, I'll let you maybe talk a little bit to what's on our product roadmap.
0: Yeah, so I, I think big picture, you know, everything Mike said about the technology and the APIs and scalability, but you know, we've really started. We want to be number one. We're really focusing on being a climate action tool. And sustainability means different things to different companies. Climate action mm. is right now probably like the biggest voice in the room about sustainability. But there's other things in there, right? There's health and wellness. There's there's all different sorts of stuff. And so when we think about expanding, you know, part of that might be you know, expanding beyond the climate focus of E to a, a more broad environmental, you know, to include those other things. And then even beyond that, we do get a fair amount of inbound asking for, you know, comprehensive ESG tools. And right now, like we're very clear, we're, we're pretty heavily weighed on the E. We mm-hmm. do have some support for the S and G because, you know, there's some there's some overlap there. If you're getting into mm-hmm. your supply chain, like you're, you're hitting on yeah. that S and we certainly have, you know, tons of stuff for that. So thinking about, you know, serving a broader ESG, both in like the data management, as well as on the content side and helping build those programs and that same, that same perspective of operationalizing the full es for an organization. Mm,
1: yeah. You know, maybe as we're talking about the future, you know, we're recording this and it's April, what is it, 27th? I lose track of time. And, you know, recently we had the SEC's proposed rule, of course, pretty historic, we think. Can you just say a few words about, I don't know, like what do you think is going to actually be finalized? Like how much of a game changer is this for reporting entities, et cetera?
0: Yes. Um, it's a pretty big deal. Like this is like the, like, most aggressive sweeping, you know, update to disclosure that we've seen in a really long time. You know, I'm engaged in tons of conversation on this with folks and, uh, It's a lot. And, you know, when I think of what's likely going to happen, like we know what our two party system does to one another. You know, right now, this this law, just for the listeners who don't know, is saying, you know, companies have to disclose their scope one and two emissions, which are emissions related to energy consumption, either that you're combusting yourself in your in your operational boundary or that you're buying like electricity or steam that's created somewhere else. But, you know, you're consuming it. And so you have to do that. And then for some organizations, you'll have to also report scope three. And that's the big bad beast in the room. That's totally. this like very nebulous category of everything that happens, you know, other than energy that supports your business, but things that your employees are doing and that your customers are doing and your suppliers are doing. I mean, everybody throughout your value chain, there's like 15 different categories of scope three. And so when I think about this proposed rule, I'm, of course thrilled that it's included you know in in its first iteration or proposal the scope 3 but when i really think about the united states you know what I, what do i think is going to happen i think that it will likely be negotiated and it's kind of hard to imagine that we're going to go from having zero mandated climate and emissions disclosures to having scopes 1 2 and 3 included mm-hmm. so i think mm-hmm. i think it's a safe bet that we'll have 1 and 2 i'm not so confident in the scope 3 but that being said you know, this is just the first proposed rule. Like, this is where we're going. You know, the U.S. is, you know, we're, we're behind of anything, you know, in doing this. You've got New Zealand, you've got Japan, you've got the U.K. Everybody's got their disclosure rules that they're putting forth because the investment community is basically begging for it you know, I, this is not going away. So I think even if scope three doesn't make it into the final rule, I think it's only a matter of time. And that, you know, if you're the kind of company that likes to play offense instead of defense, that it's something you're going to want to start doing regardless.
2: I think one thing I would just add into that is, you know, we're seeing, Chris, in the space that the private sector itself is actually starting to drive some requirements in this space. You know, you look at a company like Walmart and, and about 70 percent of Fortune 500 companies have some sort of net zero claim. But Walmart have the project gigaton, for example, that's mm-hmm. their effort to remove a gigaton of carbon from the atmosphere. And necessarily that obviously is going to impact their scope three. Walmart are going to go to Pepsi and Coke and say, hey, you got to decarbonize, you got to report, you got to understand your emissions. Yep. Pepsi and Coke will go to their suppliers and, and, and it will percolate down through the supply chain without regulation, frankly, just given the power in the market that a lot of these Fortune 500 companies have. Now, I think it's you know absolutely incumbent on um, government and regulators to also accelerate that move, but I think we'll see the private sector starting to drive a lot of that change um, w- without the regulation. So I think a lot of calls here to be optimistic that uh, we're going to get there very, very quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, if we think about the point of the SEC originally, right, whatever, seven, to eight years ago, it's providing investors information that could be material to them making an investment decision. And, you know, as we three would agree, you know, increasingly the data suggests that climate-related information is material to many businesses. So if it is, well, disclose it. Not clearly it's, it's effort and cost to disclose it. <laughs> Certainly some of the bigger concerns are, Oh, damn. Right. Like if we disclose it, what's going to happen to our you know market cap and blah, blah, blah. As listeners know, we like to get into the business, but also, oh, wait a second, like people run businesses. So how about if you could tell us one or two pieces of advice you'd give your younger self to be, I don't know, more productive, higher impact, happier, et cetera, in this uh, kind of career of changing the world.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to go with that. There's one I think I feel really passionate about and, and I've known that when I was younger and that's, you know, don't tolerate working with, with toxic people. Um, and, you know, maybe I use the word toxic a little bit strongly there, but mm. we all spend so much time at work and it's very destabilizing and unsettling if you're working in an environment where there's an individual in there who, for whatever reason, you know, maybe again, not malintentioned or necessarily a bad person, but for whatever reason, creates an unpleasant environment to work in. Mm-hmm. And when I look back over my career, there's at least two or three instances where I wish that I had removed myself from a situation or maybe managed someone out of a company more effectively because they were creating a, a, a knock-on effect that was really bad for the culture, really bad for the happiness of the team. And mm-hmm. no matter how much you enjoy your job and what you're doing and the domain you're working in and everything else, you know, the highest correlation for job satisfaction is going to be your relationship with your coworkers. And so mm. I wish I had been more, um, yeah, I wish I'd been stronger in, in my sort of, uh, beliefs around just being, being, I suppose, confident enough to leave a job and say, you know what, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Mm. I'm not enjoying that. So I think that's, that's one that I would tell everyone to keep in mind and, and um, you know, act on if it, if something feels wrong, then, just nip it in the bud as soon as you can. Um, and I think the other one, which I touched on earlier, but, you know, recognize that there's going to be failures and that things are not always going to go your way throughout your career. If you're a CEO or you're working in a job or whatever you're doing, things don't necessarily always go well. And I think just being okay with that, understanding it happens to absolutely everyone. Don't let it knock your confidence. Don't suffer from imposter syndrome because you, you messed up or you, you did something wrong or your idea failed or whatever. We all learn from that. It happens to absolutely everyone all the time. I don't care how good a CEO you are, if you're Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, they've all had missteps along the way and everyone does it. And, and just be okay with that, right? That's just human nature. That's just how we all roll and no one's perfect. There's no you know, magic individual out there who's just the perfect employee, gets everything right all the time or whatever. We all make mistakes and just you know, be cool with that and, and don't mm. let it upset you. Um, and so that's something else, again, I think I wish I had... I had known when I was starting in my career,
1: but yeah, for sure. I think, I think on the first one, you know, it's it's also known as the the no asshole rule, I believe. Um, And and the the second one it's like, yeah, I, it took me a while to realize this, but it's like, oh, well, it is normal as an entrepreneur, at least that 90 plus percent of the things you try don't work, right? Whether it's chasing investors, chasing customers, chasing partners, getting the right talent, whatever. So versus saying man i'm a i am I'm am effing up a lot. It's like no, no, five yeah. or ten percent success is pretty is pretty good right just keep just keep right. keep the at bats Alyssa, thoughts for you
0: yeah, I think you know probably not something that this that this audience needs to hear, but likely something that resonates is like respect the conventions, but don't let them stifle you. you know like if you're an entrepreneur, you're clearly coming you know to market with a business that is a fresh idea, and while it's important to obviously like understand the market and, you know, understand if this is like a legacy industry or, you know, whatever it is you're breaking into, you want to understand the parameters and the rules and kind of like how it's all worked historically. But like the whole point is you're bringing something new. And so understand like that previous structure, but don't let that constrain you, Mm. you know, like have I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm going to go for it. Go for it. I'll say have the gall. I was going oh. to I'll say have the gall to like <laughs> try it, you know, like go yeah. for it. And then similarly, yes. you know, going off what Mike said, like if it fails, it fails. But like, I don't think anybody's trying to start a business to, you know, do what's been done before.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's almost like, um, if you have a certain inclination, right. Like rather than thinking it's a bug, you know, like in software speak, like maybe it's a feature, right? Like. You're you're destined to do something that's that some folks would call a bug, you know, or or it's like uh, sometimes my kids when I do something that's very, I don't know, type A, but in the household they're like, Daddy, you're you're different than the others, you know, and they're very much being like sarcastic about it. Anyway, own own that uh, difference. Let's say, how about habits or routines? Morning, evening, daytime, whatever, monthly, quarterly, that keep you sane. And
2: focused. I've got a couple of quick ones here, Chris, that I'm, I'm happy to share, and maybe people have heard them before, but I am very OCD about making sure I have an empty inbox. Uh, you know, My inbox is my task list. Oh. And I will not sleep at night unless I have gone through that and pretty much executed anything I can execute on and anything I need to read, I'll flag it for later. But not letting things build up and just being rigorous about getting them out of the way, I think that really frees up your mind to, to think about other things and you know things are not weighing on you just don't procrastinate about little tasks that need to get done that's the first one I think the second one just my personal life and, and while I'm the antithesis of an athlete I do wear a whoop on my wrists at all times and I have done so for over a year now and I use it almost exclusively to track my sleep and I have mm-hmm. found it to be incredibly interesting informative it's changed how I think about my sleep it's you know I'm very noticed very clearly if I have maybe a couple of beers in the evening how that impacts yep. my sleep and whatever yep. And I think sleep is the foundation for for good health, for so much, right, for being effective at work, for for being a a good dad and a good husband and and everything else, right? If you don't have a good night's sleep, you're you're starting from a very bad place. And I think just being mindful of the importance of sleep. And, you know, for me, as I said, I wear the Whoop. I find that to be a a great tool. There's loads of them out there, Aura and and a few others. I, I believe they're all sort of equally good. So... Um, I couldn't recommend that more. I'm a bit of a data geek, of course. It has to be said. So maybe I'm attracted to it for that reason. But that's, that's a little life hack that I recommend to anyone.
1: I like both those. Although on the first one, the no email, the no uh, the, the zero inbox uh, approach. I think that my, the, the fifty thousand emails um, in my inbox might give you a bit of uh, trepidation. Different approach to life. And, imagine
2: um, the satisfaction, Chris, when you get through them. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be worth it.
1: Yeah one of my Christmas presents was the aura ring, similar, similar purpose to track, yeah. you know, health and such. And I was at my, uh, my annual physical exam over lunch. And she was like, Oh, well, you know, how's your sleep these days? And I was like, Oh, it's delightful. You know, And she's like, well, that's not something I hear all the time. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm, measuring it. You know, I, I now I can back yeah. it up with data. Uh, Alyssa, how about you?
0: Well, I'll preface this by saying that I am a, a new mom this year, so I have uh, an 11-month-old baby, so I don't know about this delightful speak that yeah, I'm talking about. Yeah,
1: sorry. I retract my statement, yeah.
0: <laughs> so I'll say my, my routines have likely fallen by the wayside, but you know, on a professional level, I, I guess I'm actually a bit of the opposite of Mike uh, in yet another way. In that I every night at the end of my work day, I write a to-do list. Like I write down all the things I didn't get to, everything that I can like wake up and start the day like super mm. focused and just having that hit list. and like it's it's okay that I didn't finish it that previous day. I just want to know like, all right, let's make sure nothing falls through the cracks. Let's have it ready to go and, and tee off the next day. That's something that works for me. And then, you know, on a personal level, I am, I've worked my entire professional career in New York city and we are not particularly known for our work-life balance. So it is is a struggle for me, but, um, I would say the most important thing for me is getting outside. Like I'm, I'm a real vitamin D rechargeable battery. I need Mm -hmm. a little bit of fresh air and sunshine just to kind of wake me up, you know, that and about 300 milligrams of caffeine and I'm good to go. Yeah.
1: (laughs) <laughs> Alyssa the forest bather, right? You heard it her first. <laughs> um, what did I write down? Oh, the whole like writing your to-do list before you go to bed, right? I think it was Thomas Edison or someone like this is like, oh, well, like never waste the opportunity to write down an idea for your subconscious to work on while you're sleeping before bed, you know? I was like, well, that sounds like a pretty damn good idea. I don't think I'd do it, but, but maybe you've reminded me. To do that, yeah.
0: If I don't write it down, it's like it never existed. Mm-hmm. Like there's just too much going back and forth in my mind, and I just need—I'm old school. And when I say write it down, I mean pen, paper, write it down—not—not not a mm-hmm. digital note, like a physical, you know, scribe.
1: Yeah, I, I poked in our sixteen-year-old's bedroom last night, um, and uh, you know, luckily he was doing his homework and watching a TED talk on like antimatter. Check okay, good good job. Um, and then he was writing something on a on a, like a, a document with his cursor, and I was like, "Wait, is that how you write these days?" He's like, "He's like, no, no, I just couldn't find a pencil on the paper." I was like, "Oh, my God, I was, I'm so worried. I'm so like a you that now you just use a cursor to write. <laughs> anyway, all right. How about five minutes? Let's go with two or three recommendations on books, tools, etc. That you think the audience would find useful.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to start with this one. I, I think let me give you some context to this one first, cool. uh, Chris. So you know, one of the things that that bugs me, frankly, about humanity, and I know it's part of our nature, but it's it's dogma and how wedded we get to irrational ideas. And you see it in religion and in politics mm. and, and you know, sports teams and whatever else it is, right? So I understand fully it's all part of who we are. But I can imagine a world where, I, and I think it's marginal, I can imagine a world where we were all maybe just three to 4% less dogmatic, we could live in, you know, as close to a utopia as maybe we could create a mm. rational discourse and everything. And people would mm. change their minds and people would understand when they're being biased and all the rest of it. And so that's my sort of, you know, dream for, for maybe where humanity will evolve in a, in a few thousand years. But that takes me back to my book recommendation, which yeah. is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahnman. Mm. He does such a wonderful, rigorous explanation for how we think and why we think. And he has all sorts of little tests and tricks and, and whatnot in the book to highlight, expose, and sort of generally show us, you know, all the flaws in the way we actually think about things. And I think I would recommend everyone to read that. I wish it was on the school syllabus globally, mm. because I think, you know, if we just educated ourselves a little bit more about how we think then we're more aware and then we can maybe recognize when we're being too dogmatic about an idea and then maybe things will change. So that's my great hope. But as a a book, I think that's uh, unbeatable probably in in terms of the, the list of books that I would recommend podcasts. I love how I built this. I love the style that you have here, Chris, for for that. I'm sure you're familiar with how I built this, but if you're an entrepreneur, there's so much fun, interesting, exciting stuff, great personal stories, um, really, really interesting backstories about all the famous companies that are out there. So also love that podcast. So, so that's agreed. Yes.
1: Um, How I built this and thinking fast and slow. Yeah, agreed. Alyssa, how about you?
0: I'm definitely more of a book person uh, than podcasts, I must admit. But um, for books, I would say Shoe Dog, which is the autobiography of Philip Knight, the founder and CEO of Nike. Just, you know, really informative and interesting retrospective on the foundation of that company. And uh, it's like a real bootstraps to glory type story. And so, you know, seeing that. For all the founders in the audience, um, I definitely recommend that read. And it's also interesting, frankly, you know, to read it now from my perspective through the lens of ESG and like labor practices, mm-hmm. being able to connect with that story, like given things that we know happened over the course of that company, that's definitely a big recommendation. And then I would say, you know, maybe slightly less related, but I, th- I think probably my favorite book of all time is Sapiens. It's by an Israeli author. I think his last name is Harari. And yeah, it's probably my favorite book and it's, it's really cool. It basically reviews human evolution through the framework of three critical like revolutions that fundamentally changed the course of society and really made us distinct from primates. And that's Mm. like the cognitive revolution, the agricultural revolution and the scientific revolution. And so that's just like a really cool, he's a great storyteller, but like really Mm. interesting hybrid of like history, sociology, genetics. And so anyone who kind of likes that kind of exploratory, um, a little bit of philosophical, but like based in science thinking it's beefy. So set aside some time, but it's, it's definitely worthwhile.
2: Yeah. A good, uh, a good compliment to that one, Alyssa. Um, is Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared mm-hmm. Diamond, which is probably my number two book. But if you, re- if you read those, I think, together, you- you'll get a really good perspective on, on humanity and how we've got yep. where we are.
1: Yeah, I-, I love the second one. Have not read Sapiens yet, but sa- sounds like a good uh, two or three week audible read, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. let's close out with maybe uh, I don't know, shout out request, etc., from listeners.
2: Uh, Mike, you want to go? Yeah, sure. I I would have a request to listeners. And and that is really to, you know, again, in the context of climate, and and I do think climate is, you know, an existential threat to us. And it's certainly something we should all be very concerned with. And my request is, you know, do the things in your personal life, they they might seem trivial, and they might seem like, well, what difference can I make? But if everyone does their little part, I think that will help start moving the needle. And, And I think the biggest thing that everyone can do is vote. You know, whether it's a, a town election, you know, we had people in our local town, someone who was trying to pass a law to uh, make sure no new gas lines were, were plugged into new built houses, which is a very reasonable hmm. you know, step on, on the journey towards decarbonization, you know, find your local politician that will do that obviously at, at the stage and the federal level equally try and vote for the party who recognizes that climate change is a problem and, and it's going to help us get there. So voting is probably the biggest thing you can do, but do other things in your life as well. It does all add up and it might feel like it doesn't or it wouldn't. And it's not, you know, not my problem, the tragedy of the commons or what have you, but I think it can make a difference. And so that would be my request to your listeners.
1: Well, and just before we save the best for last, wink, wink, Alyssa, you know, it's like but our, our individual actions, like at, at some point, they, they educate or influence those who actually control much bigger decisions, right, at a government, whatever policy, you know, corporate level, or investment level for that matter.
2: Yeah, uh, no, I, I think they do. And I, I think they also, you know, they're culture builders, right? If you start recycling mm-hmm. as a family and you start maybe trying to turn off the lights a little earlier or use the gas wireless or whatever, they're little things. but. They they start sort of germinating that mind share in your kids and in yourself. And you'll start to become more aware of your environment and your and you know, henceforth climate change and all the rest of it. So it's 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 the start of, of hopefully, you know, a, a boulder rolling down the hill or whatever, a stone, you know, maybe a, what is it, a snowball gathering into a bigger there snowball you go. or what have you. There you so go. it all makes an impact.
1: Well, Alyssa, I was gonna say ladies first, and I was like, no, how about we say, we say the best for last? So
0: no <laughs> I'll pressure. Take it. Yeah. I'll take it. No. I mean, I think with with the voting, you know, Mike captured that pretty perfectly. I don't think there's a more powerful thing you can do, honestly, uh, as an individual. But I guess I would just add to that a little bit of like, don't let the man get you down. Like, there's a lot of doom and gloom in climate. Like it's a problem, right? like we're we're in trouble. But, like, don't let that get you down. Don't let that stop you. Like that should invigorate you. That should energize you to, like, you know, try to work towards the solution and not, you know, not be part of the problem, be thoughtful. You know, we talk about individual actions and like, you know, sure, like you not using straws isn't going to change climate change. But like if consumers stop demanding straws, guess what? They're not going to make them anymore. Like recognize the the, the market impact and market force of your decisions as an individual, but also as an individual business, you know, and then collective businesses and markets. And that's what I got.
1: Boom drop the mic. Yeah. I mean, right on. Like th- this podcast was originally called uh, torch as in like, let's tell positive stories and be like a light in the darkness, you know? And then, and then I got some marketing advice from a friend and she's like, well, if you're a Ford motor, motor company, maybe you should have like three brands under your, you know, tiny little umbrella. But since you're not, how about you just all call it Ent- entrepreneurs for impact? I was like, well, that sounds a whole lot simpler. Damn. <laughs> Anyway, hey, uh, Mike, Alyssa, uh, great to uh, chat and tell your old story. Sustain.life, is this the website? Remind remind everyone of the website.
2: It is, Sustain.life, yep. That's it,
1: very simply. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, hey, we're rooting for your your success. Thank you, Chris.
2: Thanks
1: for having us on. Thank you so much for listening. Seriously, the world needs you and I know your time is super valuable. If you want more content like this, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter at entrepreneurs 4 If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. I read every single one, I promise. These reviews are the number one way to draw more attention to the world-changing climate CEOs and investors that I'm lucky enough to be interviewing on the show. And each month, I pick one listener review for a one-on-one brainstorming call with me, who knows what can come of those. Finally, if you're a growth stage climate CEO looking for a confidential peer group to share best practices, expand your network and scale your business, then please apply to join our climate mastermind programs at Entrepreneurs for Impact, where our current amazing members have created over $4 billion in company value to mitigate climate change. Until next time, keep on fighting those good fights!